Hello, and welcome to Unfamiliar Tales. We are your hosts. I am Pratima Gopalakrishnan, and with me is Haley Milliman. Hello! So today we will continue our conversation about part one of the life and opinions of Tomcat Murr. We're still in Murr's early life, and we're also going to discuss the Kapellmeister Johannes Chrysler's first appearance at the court of Prince Irenaeus. If none of those words made any sense to you, that's probably a good sign that you should go back and start at the beginning because this is the kind of book that uh, we will be getting into the weeds a lot. We've, we've talked about the premise of this book. It's an autobiography of a cat sliced together with the also interesting story of a human, a man named Johannes Chrysler. And we talked about how there are some overlapping characters between the two so that it's not just two random books spliced together, but it's actually uh, two narratives that are uh, intimately connected in ways that even the editor's preface uh, to the book does not does not really clue us into. It's something that you you're kind of thrown into the book and you you learn as you're frantically trying to stay above water. The most important overlapping character is probably Master Abraham. So we're going to start by talking about him today. Yeah, so Master Abraham is kind of the glue that holds both narratives together. So what is his deal? We like to refer to him not as Murr's master, but as Murr's human patron. But Master Abraham is a master of a sort. Um, He's a master of alchemy and science. So I like to think about him as almost a mix of kind of Gandalf and Rasputin. So I think about him like Gandalf because he's kind of like this weird sorcerer and he's kind of like Rasputin because he's this court dude who kind of like hangs around this court and you're you're almost like why why does this court need this dude that's a good description of master abraham i think he yeah he's absolutely the kind of guy you don't realize you need around until you are very very rich yes (laughs) yeah so he's got some fireworks going on. He's got some alchemy that he does. We learn in the book that Master Abraham first came to the court at Sigurdsson under Prince Irenaeus's dad. And Prince Irenaeus's dad was kind of a rich man who liked eccentric, strange, and mysterious things. And so like, I think, many rich men who have a lot of time on their hands and like the eccentric and strange, Irenaeus's dad used to wander around the town in disguise. Um, And so one night, as on his wanderings, he heard two men talking about a wizard that they didn't want to meet the prince. And of course, Irenaeus's dad is a rich man who's kind of used to getting his way. So when he's heard, when he overhears a conversation about this wizard that he should not, under any circumstances, meet, of course, he needs to meet him. Um, Unless, do you think that maybe Master Abraham planted those two cloaked men to create kind of buzz, like water cooler talk, like, hey, have you heard about this wizard? Like, get a hold of this wizard. (laughs) And it works like a charm. He knows, he knows his mark, you know? He put, he put Prince Irenaeus's dad in that marketing funnel and he got him. Yes, exactly. So he meets the wizard, uh, they spend the night together, and the prince's dad invites Master Abraham to become kind of a permanent fixture of the court and to actually live in the prince's castle. Then after some time, Irenaeus's dad passes away and Irenaeus becomes the prince. So this is all happening in this little town of Sieghartsweiler. Um, the princely compound is called Sieghartshof, uh, but the town is called Sieghartsweiler. And a lot of the action of the Chrysler biography, uh, the WP sections, uh, a lot of it ha- takes place at the household of Prince Irenaeus, who, uh, by the way, side note, is not a real prince. So it turns out that once Prince Irenaeus's dad died, Prince Irenaeus in- initially sent Master Abraham away. Uh, but then he realized he kind of missed him. Uh, and he searched and searched and searched for him, but he couldn't find Master Abraham for a long time. Um, and during this time, while, while Master Abraham was away, we learned that the prince one day just randomly loses his princely status. Um, what what is that what is going on there <laughs> and then sorry that's not even that's not even the the wildest thing um 
then the entire village decided to just humor Irenaeus and just keep up the pretense that he's prince, even though he's basically just a rich guy. Rich guy with a big house, for sure. Uh, but they decided to kind of keep calling him prince. So we have no information about why Irenaeus loses his princely status. We just learned that we just learned that he does. Um, and this may mirror the German princely state's lack of autonomy right after the Napoleonic invasions. Um, but, you know, we don't have any of that context in this biography itself. For us, all it means is that we have this kind of farcical court setting. All it means for us rubes reading this in 2021, just lumbering into this book, is that we have this farcical court setting and it's very funny. Uh, so this household of Prince Irenaeus, it's, it's Prince Irenaeus himself. His father obviously passed away. His wife, Princess Maria. His daughter, Princess Hedwiga. His son, Prince Ignatius. And then there are a couple other hangers-on. So um, we already talked about Master Abraham. He's kind of, you know, Rasputin on hand, your, your weirdo on retainer. There's also an, uh, a woman named Madame Benzon, who is, gosh, Another, what do another these people do? I don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I would like some, I would, I would like these jobs. Um, yes, just rich person friend, friend of rich person. <laughs> friend of friend of prince, mildly useful to prince. <laughs> exactly. So, so okay, so there's this advisor. I, I don't know what she is. Just kind of general. Yeah, she's like she's she's lady, there. Lady about the house. Lady, lady about. I like that. Lady about the house, Madame Benzon. And her daughter, Julia Benzon, who is a friend to Hedwiga. Um, so if Master Abraham and Madame Benzon are not enough, just kind of haggers on, we also have Chrysler. So Chrysler shows up into this court that is Prince Irenaeus and all the people that we just mentioned. Um, and he used to be what is known as a Kapellmeister. So a Kapellmeister is basically kind of the lead conductor of an orchestra or choir that's attached to a specific German court or noble house. So we learn in WP2 that Chrysler previously worked at a duke's court, but one day he just up and quits that position. He felt like he was disrespected and kind of being pushed out, you know, we also learn that Chrysler considers Master Abraham a friend and mentor, though we don't know at this stage how those two met each other. But we do learn that Master Abraham uh, invited him to come spend some time at Siegartsoff. So Chrysler quits this job and then heads over to this kind of farcical court of Prince Irenaeus. One of my favorite things about the story of uh, Chrysler quitting the Duke's court is that I don't even think he officially tells anyone he's quitting yeah, i think leaves. he just kind of leaves <laughs> yeah so <laughs> on the one hand i'm like life goals but on the other hand it does seem like telling the duke i quit would have been the most cathartic part of this whole thing and he yes. just kind of doesn't do that so throwing some sheet music in his i know face there's so yeah. much potential Real missed opportunity yeah or just kind of you know like tonight's music is I quit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Missed opportunity. But that's Chrysler for you. Uh, and there are some connections here to E.T.A. Hoffman's own biography. Uh, he was never a Kapellmeister in a noble or royal setting, but he held a number of positions as theater director and eventually as music director in Bamberg, uh, Dresden, uh, Leipzig. And he was certainly aware of this tension between the artist and his employer. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of, of the Chrysler story is this impossibility that Chrysler feels of, of being an artist in society. Um, when we meet Chrysler for the first time in WP1, Master Abraham is about to entrust Murr to Chrysler. And as we talked about in the second episode, when we go to WP2, the main events of Chrysler and his love quadrangle begin, and this is actually before Chrysler meets Murr, and also before Master Abraham met Murr. It's when everyone is in Sigurdsoff. And Murr is, Murr is not yet. He is not even a gleam in the eyes of his mother. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and when we meet Chrysler, he's sort of dropped into the action in his own biography, which is a bit strange. So... To set the scene, Prince Irenaeus's daughter, Hedwiga, is wandering around the park at Sigratsov along with Julia, who, as we mentioned, was the daughter of Madame Benzon, 
again, just kind of people about court. <laughs> um, as Julia and Hedwiger are wandering around this court, around this park, they hear this, what's described as this outlandish sequence of chords in the park, plus a man singing along, um, singing a beautiful song. And then the man singing cuts off and he starts to scream at his guitar. He starts to just freak out about the guitar not sounding the way he wants it to. So overhearing this screaming man, both girls initially think, oh my gosh, there's this barbarian in the park. Um, and Hedwiga, Princess Hedwiga, agitated by this, this barbarian just screaming in her park, as she should be. Um, and she thinks and that it is this, her park, yes, and she's very insistent. Yes, it's her park, and this dude is just yelling in at his guitar in it. Um, and she thinks it's a little weird. So the yelling dude kind of chucks the guitar away, and in his wake, Julia finds the guitar, picks it up, and starts to sing, which brings... Chrysler back um, because he's kind of enamored of, of the sounds that Julia was making. So when Chrysler shows up, he finds Julia and Hedwiga together and he has these two really weird and kind of long, <laughs> creepy stare moments at Julia and Hedwiga. This is this is kind of like a 19th century meet cute or what's, what's the deal here? Well, it's a little bit of a meet cute between Chrysler and Julia, but Hedwiga and Chrysler, it's like a meet terror <laughs> like whatever the opposite of cute is I mean, she's very agitated by him throughout this kind of entire passage but aren't all meat cutes the meat terror yeah well i think it depends sometimes it's like oh i bumped into this handsome man at the grocery store and sometimes you find a barbarian screaming at his guitar in your park we got to talk about this your park thing she's not even i mean sorry she's not even a real princess well i mean it's almost like when everything's stripped away what do you have but your ceremony. I mean, this is like the whole British royal family, right? Like, all, what do they have but their their series of curtsies that they must all do to each other in private? Like, what does Hedwiga have but the park? I feel like if Chrysler had not been so strange. Was he that strange? I mean, he's just yelling at his guitar. I mean, I was yelling at Microsoft Word, which is kind of my, you know, my artistic instrument of choice. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so, but were you doing it in someone else's home or someone else's park? I don't know. Who is she to tell me what to do in her park, which is not actually her park? Well, I guess, do they still own the house, though? Maybe they still own the house and the lands. They, yeah, you're right. But, they, you know, the park, the enjoyment of the park comes from... It's for everybody, yeah. yeah. But again, you know, you and I are but common villagers, so who knows what that feels like as a princess <laughs> you know maybe as a princess the enjoyment comes from enjoying it just by yourself <laughs> with no one else around you <laughs> so who knows <laughs> so okay so what happens okay so they meet. yeah so they meet they have this kind of long staring moments and he kind of stares at julia and he stares at hedwiga both individually and he ultimately kind of individually and then together yes exactly yes um, after again having just tossed his guitar in a bush and ran running away so he throws himself at Hedwig's feet and she freaks out she's already been freaked out but she freaks out even more at this point she runs back to the house where she intercepts with Madame Benzon, who kind of asks the girls you know what's happened why are you so why are you so upset when the girls share the story, Benzon is like, oh, I know that guy. Screaming at guitars and exchanging creepy stares. I think I know who that might be. We find out later that Chrysler and Madame Benzon do know each other. Everyone in this story seems to know everybody else and like, you know, you don't find out until later exactly why, so we won't we won't spoil it here. But this is, I mean, this whole story of the park and uh, Chrysler meeting Julia and Hedwiga. Yeah, so this is his entrance into the the main main events of his own biography which again we think he perhaps wrote this you may send us um your your proofs for and against if you'd like but yeah so he enters his own biography a little bit strangely he's kind of a secondary character in Irenaeus's court narrative uh, and this is just another example of how weird this biography is and as we also see in this scene, uh, Chrysler is, is, is someone who feels things very intensely. So throughout this book, um, 
He pretty much has only two emotions. One is extreme artistic fervor or extreme irony. And he'll kind of just kind of go between those two at the flip of a switch. So he, you know, he's he's very stubborn. He's very reluctant to answer questions straightforwardly. He loves making a mockery of courtly manners. He is kind of the anti-Murr in some sense. Um, I, I said in episode two that Murr feels things intensely in his own way. One of the things that you can do when you're when you're reading the autobiography of a cat is that you kind of you can kind of heighten the absurdity of certain things that human beings do. Um, it's a very effective. This is something that's true of a lot of the animal tales that we'll talk about in on this podcast. It's a very effective. Uh, tool for satire uh, and what's great about uh, about this book is that we managed to get that without ever feeling like Murr himself is the butt of the joke we're always kind of on Murr's side um, and you know part of, a lot of that is because so Mur, Murr's story exposes the absurdity of of things that uh, Master Abraham does or things that you know human beings do um, the big one is kind of the absurdity of scholarly life um, and just uh, the life of reading and writing books um but Murr is also you know the, the reason why why you just feel like you're on his side the whole time is that Murr just likes throwing himself into new social settings with enthusiasm and with optimism and he'll throw himself into something and then he'll let himself be disappointed by it whereas uh Chrysler is on the whole much more self-aware about setting himself up for disappointments socially so he comes to a lot of these social contexts already expecting the worst out of everyone around him and I think you know so- something like the incident in the park him screaming at his guitar and Hedwig's reaction to it I think it's the kind of thing that he would see Hedwig's reaction and it would just confirm all the things that he already thought about Hedwiga. So, and, and I think that's that's also true of, you know, when he meets Madame Benzon eventually and they're kind of reunited and they're talking about, you know, how they used to know each other before. He acts a certain way. He knows, I, I think he knows what reaction he'll get. And then he's like, this confirms what the low opinion I always had of you. The other, the other example of this we get is um, Chrysler's talking about his, his uh, childhood with uh, a man who's described as a privy counselor, which I thought was some kind of like toilet minister or something, <laughs> yes. but it's actually just a judicial <laughs> judicial position. Privy um, to a lot of things. So he's talking. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking. So he's talking about his childhood to this man, and he's talking about how his and he has the same kind of um, you know flips between extreme fervor and extreme irony in this conversation, and he's talking about how. Uh, his parents were divorced. The story of how his his mother died and his aunt died. Um, he was raised by this uncle who rarely gave Chrysler any encouragement or affection. Uh, so it's this. Um, he's telling this this story of. Um, he's telling the story of his childhood while also claiming that you know, he can he cannot tell you a story. He's it's kind of making fun of his ability to tell a story straightforwardly, and then he tells a story, and then he's like. See, I can tell a story straightforwardly when I have to. <laughs> so there are a lot of parallels, again, here in Chrysler's narrative to E.T.A. Hoffman himself. So E.T.A. Hoffman also had divorced parents, and he spent a lot of time growing up uh, around aunts and uncles. So in some ways, again, it seems like Chrysler is almost a surrogate for Hoffman himself in the narrative. Yeah, although I think one difference is that I think Hoffman was pretty well supported in his musical aspirations maybe maybe not i don't know if he was encouraged to pursue it professionally but he was he seems to have grown up in a in a musical household at least but chrysler so chrysler describes how he you know he talks about his parents being divorced his uh, and and living with uh, with his aunts and uncles uh, and he talks about one uncle in particular who i get the impression that you know that he the uncle didn't he didn't forbid Chrysler from pursuing music, but he also didn't just kind of gave him a lot of mixed messages about Chrysler's talent or about kind of the end game of these musical aspirations. Mm-hmm. So he says that um, Chrysler's uncle disapproved of his aspirations, but also insisted that he learn music, even though Chrysler's music tutors would all say that he 
was extreme, but that he was actually not a good musician. And then when it turned out that Chrysler did have some musical talent, then the uncle was no longer interested in his musical aspirations. And Chrysler ends up pursuing this other career. So in this conversation with the privy counselor, the privy counselor then asks him um, why, why Chrysler was forced into this non-musical career by his uncle. And I'm actually, I'm not sure that he was forced into that career. I think he, mm-hmm. he just wasn't, wasn't encouraged, you know, he, but on the other hand, Chrysler says he wanted to be like his uncle. He says that he actually chose the, this profession of legation counselor, um, because he wanted to be like his uncle. And he says, you know, I just never stopped to consider that music may have been my true calling. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he says this, um, he says, you know, I had reached my goal and could not now turn back when at an unexpected moment, the art to which I had been unfaithful avenged itself. <laughs> the idea of a wholly wasted life seized bleakly and painfully upon me. And I saw myself in chains which seemed unbreakable. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I understand the value of, of representation, but nobody wants to be seen like this. Nobody, yes. This is not how I wanted to be represented <laughs> in this biography. But again, like, who among, whomst amongst us <laughs> has whomst, not, indeed. whomst amongst us has not considered a career because we want to impress a family member or an elder or something like that. And Urumst Amongst Us has also not gotten to a certain point and been like, oh man, I've sunk sunk a lot of time and effort into this thing. What if it was all wrong? I think the, the part that felt most relatable was this, yeah, the privy counselor being like, oh no, you were forced into a non-musical yeah. career. And like, I don't think he was. It just this... Yeah, the the sequence of events that you just kind of end up falling into. A, yeah, a thinking career. someone cares. Yeah, and like thinking someone cares. Yeah, right? like thinking someone cares so much about something, or thinking that this one thing is the right thing to do, and it it never is. The person never cares the way you think that they care. And that's what <laughs> was that's what was so. Yeah, again, eviscerating about this yes. uncle thing. It's not that it would be simpler if the uncle just was like, you know, forced him to sign the legation counselor entrance exam papers or something. But I don't <laughs> yeah, know. he didn't. He did not. Yeah, he didn't do any of that. He just kind of benignly supported. It sounds like he just kind of benignly supported Chrysler, right? But there wasn't that kind of full-throated endorsement that Chrysler was cle- clearly craving. And but, so Chrysler... which, but which maybe maybe one can never, one should never expect. One can maybe exactly. that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe the uncle was just like, "I want you to be happy no matter what," <laughs> and he truly meant that. But <laughs> but that if you want to be a legation counselor or a you know Kapellmeister, either way, I love you. And then I love that Master Abraham has his. He has his own little career advice thing here, too. He says, fate has always meant by you, and the fact that you can't be content with an ordinary jog trot, but keep leaping off the path to right and left is nobody's fault but your own. Um, Again, who wants to be seen like this? (laughs) Come on, Chris. Not only the leaping off the path to right and left, but I think Master Abraham, I think Master Abraham understands that Chrysler wants to be someone who is described Has a calling. as calling. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's not happy yeah. with an ordinary jog trot. Yes, <laughs> he wants to be sprinting straight, straight on till morning. But I think also it's interesting, you know, when we consider the parallels between Chrysler and Hoffman, right? Like, did Hoffman wish for an Abraham himself who was just would just be like, "Come on, get it together, <laughs> get it together, dude"? Because <laughs> Chrysler himself had was kind of leaping off the path left and right and had several different professions and you know um professional passions that he pursued so uh it's interesting to think about you know did did or did hoffman want his own abraham i don't think abraham him? is providing anything of value in the 16th <laughs> yeah. no i, I think <laughs> just yeah maybe it's just me resonating with it who's <laughs> like hey master abraham's telling me to just pick a path and go forward <laughs> i i mean i i felt like master abraham is is kind of um, enabling Chrysler's mm. idea that, like, 
you know, ah, oh, fate is, you know, I, I cannot be, yeah, that's right, I can't be content with an ordinary jog trot. That's what I, mm. I read this and I was like, that's right, I'm special too. So <laughs> I, I think, I think, I Mas- we take from it. We I think Master Abraham is just enabling some of Chrysler's special boy tendencies. Yeah, I guess the stars, yeah, he goes on to say, you're right to think in your boyhood years, your stars exerted a, partic- a peculiar influence. So the stars were aligned for Chrysler um, in a way that Chrysler probably doesn't need to hear that the stars were spelling out his, his fate. <laughs> he just needs to go on the path. Maybe he'll become a privy counselor at the end of this. Like maybe he'll talk yeah. to the privy counselor and be like, oh, "That sounds like pretty interesting work." I mean, it's yeah, yeah it's a job. Work. I was work. just looking at the wrong, the wrong type of counseling. A legation counselor is very boring, <laughs> but the privy counselor, privy counselor though, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> so that's kind of what's happening with Chrysler in in part one. Is he? We learned that eventually. Chrysler is going to adopt Murr. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lo- before Murr was born, when everyone's hanging out in Seacart's house, we learn about how Chrysler quit this job at the, the Duke's court and how he's ended up here. And we're seeing that some some events have been set in motion by Chrysler meeting, um, you know, not only kind of reuniting with his friend Master Abraham, but also meeting uh, Julia and Hedwiga and Madame Benson. Meanwhile, what's going on with Murr? Well, so Murr is also not content with an ordinary jog trot or an ordinary cat's life. But unlike Chrysler, Murr has a very kind of clear sense of himself and what he wants to accomplish. Um, And that is learning to read and write. So under Master Abraham... um, Murr, we learn that Murr has basically unlimited freedom to educate himself as long as he follows the natural courtesies of not stealing Abraham's food and not, you know, not peeing in the house, which is really what we ask of everyone living with us, what we all want. You can pee in the house, just in the designated yeah. areas. Pee in the designated areas, exactly. The privy, co- I, am, I am the privy counselor of <laughs> yes. my house. <laughs> yes. So... Murr has this freedom under Abraham, but Abraham was not quite understanding at first. So Murr sees Abraham's desk as almost a holy space, and he is enamored with it, and he waits and he watches until Abraham leaves and then sees his chance to jump up on the desk. So once Murr jumps up on that desk, he just burrows himself in all of the books and papers there. And Murr is very clear that he means no harm to the books. This is not out of mischief. It's out of scholarly veracity and uh, and love for all the knowledge that he can gain. But in doing this, Murr um, accidentally messes up, accidentally scratches some of the papers. Abraham finds Murr burrowed in all of these books gets angry and hits Murr, shooing him off the table. Um, and Murr, Murr is afraid of this. He goes and he hides for a little bit. And we should make it very clear here that we do not condone Abraham's behavior. It's There's several mentions by Murr of, of Abraham hitting him or, or hitting him with the birch um, or hitting him with his hand or just shooing him in kind of a violent way. This is another one of those places where there's a, a contradiction between um, between Murr's telling of some of these events and Master Abraham's telling of these events. So Master Abraham describes himself as a very generous, uh, you know, patron to to Murr, um, whereas uh, Murr 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 takes some of these experiences. He's, he's clearly very scared in the moment, as you mentioned, Haley. He you know he hides, uh, but he also um, he also has this way of explaining it away or psychologizing mm-hmm. it or he, he calls it his, you know, his moral education. Mm-hmm. Um, so he I think I think that's how Murr in his autobiography chooses to make sense of some of these events. Yes, it is. It is very sad um, yeah. to read. Um, in this case, luckily, Abraham does eventually realize that Murr is not trying to destroy anything. Um mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So Abraham realizes Murr is not does not mean the books any harm. He's actually Abraham realizes that Murr is just interested in reading the books. So he tells Murr that it's okay. He's allowed to read the books as long as Murr treats the books very gently and only leaves light scratches if he needs to mark, you know, <laughs> an interesting an interesting chapter or something like that. But he has to take care of the books. So Murr takes. Um, takes that and runs with it. He's very careful to handle the text, um, import, or to handle the text gently from that point forward. And this story of how Murr encounters books for the first time, we get this alongside uh, the story of Chrysler being raised uh, in his in his uncle's house. And there's a striking contrast there too. Chrysler mm-hmm. is given full freedom to read in his uncle's library. There's I know it's obvious to to be like, well, obviously Murr is a cat, so no one was expecting <laughs> him to read in the library. But those are exactly the kind the kinds of absurdities that come to the fore when you're when you're reading Murr's narrative, and you can especially see the contrast between yeah theories of education when applied to humans and and <laughs> theories of education when applied to cats. And and this moment, this is a watershed moment for Murr, not just because he first gets to read the books, but also the lesson he learns to, to read the text, but gently, is something that Murr takes to heart. When he opens the book for the first time after that, he explicitly states that he takes great care to open the book gently with one paw. And, and this this care that Murr exhibits with the books is really at odds with how the editor describes mm-hmm. the splicing together of the text. So the editor yes. says, it seems that the cat took this book and tore it up. And that's how we get this. But the truth is they don't they don't really know yep. how this book was put together either. This is just the, the facts as best as they can establish them. Um, but from what we know of Murr describing his own conduct around books, there's no he doesn't give any indication that he would be the kind of cat to tear books. He's very he's kind of very respectful. And as you know, as you said, Haley, he almost kind of the study is such a sacred place to him. I don't yeah, it seems out of character for him to, you know, tear up a book. Yes, and he doesn't just take care of reading books. He also takes care because the next thing he does is start to teach himself to write. Um, and he takes immense care with this as well. So Amur, Amur teaches himself to write in these sections, and he has to kind of develop his, his own unique style for how to do this because he is a cat and doesn't have thumbs. And this is the 19th century, so unfortunately he doesn't have a typewriter or a keyboard that he can just push. He's got to figure out how to dip his pen in the inkwell without getting ink all over his paw and kind of messing it up. And so he goes through several rounds of um, iteration before he figures out what works for him. Ironically, we've actually gone backwards in in kind of cat-friendly <laughs> writing devices. So, yeah. you know, typewriter would have been great, like, you know, or a big yeah. mechanical keyboard. Um, but, you know, I don't know how Murr would do with touch, well, touch pads on the on the MacBooks are disaster for humans too. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah, but I don't know how he would do with, uh, you know, a stylus or a touchscreen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as a, as this a is, present. This is a struggle that many lefties know, right? Like the struggle of how to avoid getting ink all over your paper and <laughs> figuring out how to handle a stylus. <laughs> oh, so Murr learns how to write. He learns how to dip his pen in the inkwell without getting ink and how to um, create a legible scrawl. And he starts to write after that. So he begins a pretty prolific career as uh, as a writer. And his first writings are Thought and Intuition, or Cat and Dog, Mousetraps and Their Influence on the Character and Achievement of the Feline Race, which is a political work, and then Cad- Qua- sorry, Cod- Codeller, King of Rats, which, uh, is a, as you might assume, is a tragedy. <laughs> Uh, and a tragedy, a tragedy itself, not a, the manuscript itself is not a tragedy. It is a tragic story. <laughs> so he is, uh, he is, as perhaps many young writers, he's very ambitious and very yes. uh, wide ranging in the kinds of genres he, he experiments with. <laughs> Lucky us, we hear him talk about some of these books, the cat and dog book, the mouse traps book, but we actually also get some of the context for uh, when in his life he was inspired to write some of these books. And we're very fortunate yes. to have yeah. that information. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the first several the first several sections chronicle Murr's uh, Murr's journey to read and write, but then also, as you mentioned, his introduction to two significant characters that influence what he's writing. The first being Ponto the Poodle, and then the cat Mina, who is his mother. So Murr meets Ponto when Ponto's owner comes to engage with Master Abraham. And Murr knows Ponto's owner. He's met him before, but this is the first kind of time that he's brought Ponto. And Murr is terrified. So Murr is first frightened of Ponto. He kind of hides, runs away. But he hears from Ponto's owner that Ponto is friendly towards cats. And then he eventually hears Ponto start to speak broken catish, the language that cats speak, and kind of slowly starts to trust to trust Ponto and to kind of peek out and, and maybe engage with him. And in this passage, we learn a lot about animal communication. We see that it, like human ca- communication, is both spoken language and body language. So Murr um, interprets Ponto's motivations based on both what Ponto is saying in the broken caddish and then kind of how Ponto is orienting himself towards Murr physically. So eventually, Murr indicates to Ponto by kind of swishing his tail a little bit that he's interested in pursuing this friendship and they just fall deeply into friendship love they're kind of tumbling all around they're having fun with each other Um, and we find that this friendship made a really big impression on Murr and it caused him actually to start to write thought and intuition a comma or cat and dog and in this manuscript Murr explores language in dogs and cats and asserts that there isn't a cattish or a doggish. There's just one common language from which cattish or doggish and doggish are derived, kind of like Latin, <laughs> and then cattish and doggish are like Spanish and French, right? There's like a common ancestor there. Um, and we also learn in this manuscript that there are actually even more dialects of both caddish and doggish. So Ponto, for instance, speaks a dialogue of doggish known as poodlish, since he is a poodle. But Murr in the manuscript kind of states that there are clearly, there's so many clear roots that they clearly have a common language. For instance, Bow Wow is so similar to Meow Meow. I have so many questions about this. So first (laughs) of all, do you think that thought and intuition or cat and dog, do you think that's supposed to be like Cat represents Cats, thought yes. and dog. Rep- yes. How do you feel about that? You know, I I think it's a purposely controversial title, I would say, because I think that Murr then goes, in, his kind of thesis of the manuscript is that there, there aren't the, there isn't differences between caddish and doggish, right? There isn't this difference, but they come from this kind of one common place. And so I think maybe what he's saying is it's not... You know, obviously we don't have the full manuscript, but I think I would guess that maybe he's saying there's not so much different between cat and dog that actually thought into intuition are kind of making up parts of a whole cat and a whole dog. And one is not solely, one is not wholly thought and one the other is not wholly oh, intuition. That's a really bold uh, title considering that he's, he's really, he's undermining that thought intuition binary. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah. Okay, so then my other question is, I think the really interesting thing about bow 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 and meow meow, which bow wow bow wow, ba- sorry bow, <laughs> bow, bow, bow. bow wow and meow meow, <laughs> is that Mur yes. has the theory that they're both uh, that those are actually derived from a common uh, Proto Indo European root. The meow meow meow, I th- my cats use that one to communicate with with me, the human. Um, they don't really use it ever to communicate with each other. Uh, and I'm wondering if Bow Wow has a similar use or if Bow Wow is uh, the way that it's evolved. It can be also for other dogs or for, you know, other animals. Yeah. I mean, Murr himself says that, you know, he he says that a lot can be packed into the meow. And he talks about his like very first, he remembers clearly his very first and it was to And it was to a human. Yes, it was to a human. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure because he does say that there are not so many differences, again, between even humans and then cats and dogs as well. So it's possible that these are primarily for humans. He does um, he does talk about other doggish and cattish words that have 
similar roots as well. Yap, yap, and yep. snap, snap. Yes. And uh, grr, grr, and purr, purr. So I think this is... Yeah. I would. I wish we had the full manuscript, kind of the full lost works of Murr, because that's, again, I think the snap the yap yap and the snap snap i could see those as uh, i could see where where they have a common meaning but gur gur and purr purr i think of purring as i i think of purring as a predominantly or primarily positive but not exclusively so so interestingly cats can also purr when they're under distress or feeling Mm -hmm. anxious uh, Gurger, maybe there's a similar tipping point between extreme pleasure and extreme anxiety um, yeah. that maybe is encapsulated by this Gurger purper parallel that Murr points out. Yeah. Well, you, we have to ask Knox, but I do know that sometimes he um, does behaviors that might be interpreted as anger when he's actually excited so he'll shake you know for instance or whine in a way that seems like he's in distress but he is actually very excited it's strange to me that poodles in this in germany would not speak the same language as retrievers in germany they would speak like a poodleish dialogue and retrieverish dialogue versus all germanish dog germanic dogish which i think is mur is you know mur is kind of writing in a very specific german context as well so we would have to find his full works um if i think that would be a really interesting to see if he had anything to say about uh, how this plays out how the breed variation plays out alongside regional variation yeah, definitely. So, yes, a large part of Murr's narrative in this in these sections is focused on him. You might think that doggish sounds the same all across the country, but that hasn't been my experience. I was born in Mississippi, and I grew up in Tennessee where the dogs like to elongate their vowels. Think bow-wow. Each vowel really gets a chance to shine. When I moved up north, I was shocked. The dogs up here speak so quickly. Bow-wow, bow-wow, bow-wow. It led to a lot of confusion at the dog park, let me tell you. I kept trying to tell the other dogs that the ball was mine, but they just wouldn't listen. Wow, that's fascinating, Knox. Maybe you and I should become dialect coaches to Prathima and Haley. I really love that they're trying to learn so much about Kaddish and Doggish, but they really need to work on their accents. scholarly pursuits and the other narrative focuses on him meeting his mother yeah so the other important encounter that Murr has in this section is with a cat named Mina who is actually Murr's mother it's a really striking episode um, because Mina presents a challenge to Murr's scholarly aspirations that no one else has really voiced to him yet Um, Mina has not had an easy life. Mina actually confirms Master Abraham's story that um, Murr's litter was apparently drowned. So she lost her entire litter uh, after giving birth to them. And she realizes later on that Murr was actually saved. um, But she doesn't know that uh, until Murr suddenly meets her one day. Uh, Murr meets her because he's out for a stroll uh, on his roof one morning and he hears sounds from the attic. And he's drawn by them and he jumps into the attic and he sees this beautiful calico cat who he learns is his mother. So they're not very, they're not, you know, distant from each other. Uh, This is, uh, you know, she's in definitely on the same block. I can't tell how the attics are set up. I can't tell if she's in the same house. (laughs) I don't know who this old woman Mm -hmm. is that drowned her kittens. But it turns out that even before this incident with the old woman drowning the kittens, uh, Mina already sensed that her litter was in danger because uh, Murr's father, who Mina describes as a very handsome fellow, and she says that some people even mistook uh, Murr's father for a count 
because of his demeanor and his <laughs> elegant manners. So Murr's father looked like a real aristocrat. Now, I, sh- I should know here that I my understanding is that a single litter can have kittens fathered by multiple tomcats. Yeah, she does say that Murr looks exactly like the faithless ingrate who abandoned her. So it's clear that, that the cat who abandoned her is Murr's father specifically. Uh, but he sounds like even though he had great manners, he was a bit of a, sh- a shithead. Uh, because not only did he abandon Mina and Murr and the rest of the litter, Mina says that the father actually tried to eat the baby kittens. Um, to which Murr says, Dearest mother, do not condemn that propensity entirely. And Murr says, you know, even the Greeks worshipped the god Kronos, who ate his own children, but Jupiter was saved from that. Jupiter becomes the king of the gods, and Murr was saved just like this king of the gods. Uh, but Mur Mina says, you know, come on, you're nuts. I protected you. I saved you here. So the gist of the scene is that Mina is, um, she's a very wise cat. She's not impressed by Murr knowing Greek mythology. So when Murr hears the story of uh, of his father trying to eat the kittens, um, he, which I, I, I'm not sure if that's normal. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> the story goes to very dark places. Um, but when, you know, Murr's reaction to this is, ah, like Kronos. And Mina is just not having it. She says, come on, you know, you're you're being ridiculous. I protected you. Uh, you should be thanking me. Uh, so she's just not she's not taken in by Murr knowing Greek mythology or talking about his learning. Um, in fact, when she learns that Murr can read and write, her first reaction is make sure Master Abraham doesn't find out because you can bet he's going to put you to work. So she says, the moment Master Abraham learns that you can write, my dear Murr, he will make you his copying clerk and he will demand of you as your duty what you now do for pleasure and of your own free will. So this is like, cue that meme of Karl Marx (laughs) cribbing off of Dolly Parton's paper as she writes 9 to 5, except instead of Marx cribbing Dolly Parton, it's Marx cribbing off Mina the cat. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if Knox or Pebbles, if they have any podcast editing skills, they're definitely hiding them well from us, uh, lest we we find them out and make them work for us. <laughs> it's unclear at first whether Murr grasps the wisdom of what Mina has said to him. It does sink in over time because uh he becomes a little more careful around Master Abraham. Yeah, and it turns out that he's right to be cautious about it because an incident happens later where Ponto, the poodle, takes some of the pages of Murr's writing to his human patron, Lothario. Um, and then Lothario kind of s- figures out that the pages contain Murr's writing and storms back over to Master Abraham's and reveals to Master Abraham that the manuscript that Ponto has brought him has been written by Master Abraham's cat. And he accuses Master Abraham of training Murr to write because, you know, Master Abraham's this kind of weird alchemist wizard, and it seems like it would be in his wheelhouse. Um, and then Master Abraham says, I didn't yeah, know Yeah, and this such is thing. ironically the thing that Mina feared. She was worried that Master Abraham would find out that Murr can read and write and would basically turn him into an underpaid research assistant. Um, and... Uh, you know, that's why I think Murr becomes a little more careful around him, uh, careful, careful about how overtly he's pursuing his uh, his scholarly inclinations. But Master Abraham, in this exchange with Professor Lothario, it's not even on his radar. He has no interest in in using this cat's reading and writing skills for anything. He's, he seems to find the whole suggestion kind of absurd. And it's it's a little mm-hmm. strange because we had Master Abraham earlier seemingly encourage Murr's reading ambitions. I think both of us were wondering why Master Abraham was suddenly so surprised to see Murr's pages. So what's going on here? Yeah, was he, you know, was he thinking that Murr was just playing at reading? Was he just kind of humoring these reading ambitions? Or was he actually aware that Murr was reading? Was it kind of that, like, you know, that that overall theme that we've talked about where we attribute 
we being us as humans, pets, pet patrons, like attribute emotions and thoughts and feelings to our animals that might be misinterpreted. So maybe he was kind of misinterpreting, you know, misinterpreting what Murr is doing as like an, oh, dear fellow, so cute, <laughs> so cute that you like books. When Murr actually is like, no, I, I really like books <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious about this scholarship. Well, there are three possibilities to see them. One is that, yes, Master Abraham was just humoring his cute little cat who wants to burrow in all the books. Like, oh, look, <laughs> my cat is reading. Option two is that he genuinely knows that his cat is reading, but was extremely surprised to learn that his cat is also writing and that to writing poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, option three yes. is that he did not want to reveal to Professor Lothario that he knew what was up. So this is like, he is playing four-dimensional chess, not revealing to Professor Lothario yes. that he knows that his cat is both reading and writing and also hiding it from Murr that he knows what he's up to. I don't think there's any basis for that yeah. <laughs> for any of these theories, actually. They're all just 100% vibes, but... I can see Master Abraham being like, what? My cat? Writing, you say? Like, just very sarcastic. And Murray in that scene is kind of like peeking in from the bookshelf, right? Like, he's not supposed to be there and he knows that something is kind of amiss. And um, so Murr is maybe not picking up on Abraham's sarcasm. Um, and he also has this incident with Mina recently where he's knows to be knows to be nervous about humans kind of learning about his talents. So maybe his his own fears and his own experience is kind of clouding how he interprets what Abraham is. And so is saying. although this interaction with Mina um, it instills this distrust maybe or just caution, I think. Um, Murr exhibits around Master Abraham. Um, I think if not, you know, if nothing else, I don't know what Master Abraham actually thought in that scene. But what does stick with Murr is that both Master Abraham and Professor Lothario, they pull his sonnets and they start reading from them, and then they both laugh mm-hmm. at them. And Murr feels, you know, regardless mm-hmm. of what. Master Abraham does or doesn't know about his writing ambition, any of that, Murr finds that very hurtful. He thinks that this is not how you yes. encourage a young artist or a scholar in the making. So I think Mm-mm. even if Murr had no reason to maybe be suspicious of Master Abraham indenturing him into into scholarly <laughs> servitude, he is uh, he he does have reason to be distrustful in the end because because they laughed at him and I, I think that really hurt him too and it mirrors Chrysler in some ways right where Chrysler is feeling like he's not getting the support he needs in his artistic ambition and the same is true for Murr right this Murr has all this ambition and he just really wants to share it and kind of be appreciated and he's met with derision and kind of rejection from his mother too but I think the difference is that Chrysler really takes that to heart, whereas Murr is like, all right, <laughs> it's like fuel, almost like both experiences are kind of like fuel to him, where with Mina, he's like, I'm just going to do it anyway. And then, you know, from this, he's like, I'm, I'm going to write a better it's on a strong book. Front. I'll, give, I'll give him that. But I felt I felt for him yeah. in, that, in this scene, you know, and, and Murr is having these, he, he's having this moment of of kind of realizing some truths about his relationship with Master Abraham, but it's important to note that for all of this, you know, disappointment that he feels in the scene with Professor Lothario reading his manuscript, his his reaction to some of these incidents with Professor Lothario and Master Abraham isn't then to retreat to his mother or to retreat to to find other cats um that does happen um later in the book i think he finds other ways of being around other cats Uh, but at this point in the story he has this exchange with uh, mina he only he only meets her once in his life you know he notices that she does not have that he notices that he has a much more comfortable life than her and he tells her you know i have some extra fried fish from my breakfast uh, I'm going to bring it to you because you look really hungry. Um, and then he goes and he gets the fish. And once he gets the fish, he has, shall we say, a change of heart. Let's hear Murr describe this in his own words. 
Who can measure the inconstancy of heart of those who walk beneath the light of the moon? Why has fate not locked our breasts against the wild play of unworthy passions? Why must we bow like a frail reed shaken with the wind before the storm of life? O hostile fate, O appetite, thy name is Cat. With the herring head in my mouth, I climbed to the roof, like pious Aeneas, intending to get in through the attic window. I then fell into a state that, dividing myself in a curious way from myself, yet seemed to be my real self, that strange feeling, compounded of desire and reluctance, numbed my senses, overpowered me. Resistance was useless. I ate the herring head. I heard Mina mew anxiously. Anxiously, I heard her call my name. Full of remorse and shame, I ran back to my master's room and crept under the stove, where I was tormented by the most distressing ideas. I saw Mina, my black and white mother. I saw her desolate, abandoned, hungry for the meal I had promised, near fainting. Oh, what a bitter, heart-rending pain went through me. I decided to invite the poor creature to share my breakfast milk, if possible. At this notion, a blessed peace came over me, like cooling, soothing shade. I put back my ears and fell asleep. So this whole episode made me so sad and also made me laugh so hard. It's one of funny. I think it's one of our favorite passages from the book, from the entire book. Um, There are just these little moments where Murr's aspirations clash with his, you know, instinct or nature or whatever you want to call it. And he says, you know, myself and then my real self. And my real self is what made me eat this fish head that I'd promised to my mother. He, you know, he says, my senses were numbed, I was overpowered, I had to eat the fish. And, you know, on the one hand, it's instinct, nature, whatever. But on the other hand, I think it's also because, yeah, does Mina, I think in the in the scene, we see that he doesn't really think of Mina's relationship to him as maternal in any meaningful way. Yeah, and I think also it, you know, it goes back to that manuscript he was writing, like thought and intuition, and kind of why I think it's possible that he was just, you know, in that manuscript, knocking down the binary, because we see here, Murr acting incredibly instinctively, and with instinct overruling the thought he had here, too. So I think, you know, he's challenging the idea that cats can be kind of wholly ruled by by in, or by thought and as opposed to intuition it definitely seems like he relies on that language of instinct when it's mm-hmm. when it's useful for him which is yes. why i kind of want i i kind of i want to be suspicious of that too i'm like i because there are other places where he does you know share food with other cats or um he knows how to you know this is a cat with exceptional self-control you don't just learn to read and write um without being <laughs> incredibly disciplined so I, I just it, it made it made me think honestly of so I had I had a neighbor um, in in New Haven um, who had three cats I think three or four it was a mother cat and uh, her two daughters um, but I would always I always felt like they didn't visibly have a mother daughter dynamic whatever mm-hmm. that would look like for a cat and this is again maybe maybe I'm assuming certain things about what a mother-daughter dynamic should look like for a cat like yeah. they didn't go shopping i don't know um <laughs> but they were all kind of just pure cats at home um there was mm-hmm. and you know this is partly because the mother was you know maybe just a few months older than the kittens um and when i knew them they were all several years old so there wasn't 
they were they they were so close in age to one another and they lived in relationship of patron and cat to this to my neighbor for so long mm-hmm. that i i don't i feel like it changed their internal the, their their inter interpersonal intercattle mm-hmm. dynamics <laughs> intercattle dynamics, intercattle yes. dynamics so that it, it wasn't really yeah it wasn't like a mother daughter thing similarly yeah. like i have you know two cats that i put into a sisterly relationship um i don't know what they would say about that um mm-hmm. they're all kind of pure cats at home and that's that's kind of what uh Murr himself that's how he describes this incident as well he says well you know we're all kind of responsible for our own herrings so you can't expect and anyone to kind of look out for you which is yeah. really bleak and really yes. funny <laughs> and in the absence of like a traditional kind of maternal mother-son relationship then like Mina's just kind of this cat who's like come to him and kind of been like your dreams and ambitions are a little silly and pot- potentially dangerous and so he's kind of like why should I share my fish head with this lady you know there's like or this cat there's why you know and then he just kind of gives over to the instinct of you know this would be really tasty I'm just gonna eat it myself we endorse sharing your leftovers unless they're really really delicious yes (laughs) yeah and then you know what we've all been there (laughs) we've all been there with a plate of leftovers we accidentally told someone else who would make it have but one of the one of the best parts about this passage is that E.T.A. Hoffman has this way of writing the physicality of the cat in ways that heighten the absurdity of some of Murr's actions, and then also highlight this kind of tension between you know what is Murr doing versus what what Murr appears to be doing, right? So with this interaction with his mother, did he have? a tearful reunion with his mother. Did he promise her some leftovers and then go eat them himself and take a guilt nap as again, we all do. Or, you know, if someone else was watching this, did he go up and meow for a while at another cat and then come back down and eat a snack, right? If a human was watching, how would they interpret uh, Murr's actions? And so Hoffman plays with these kind of descriptions of, again, cat instinct, nature, thought and intuition, intuition and thought, so that you're not really sure what you're seeing. Bringing that back to Abraham, right? When Abraham first realizes that Murr is reading, did his cat just shred his pages because he's a cat and that's what cats do? Or was that cat overcome with the hedonistic pleasure of his single-minded scholarly pursuit? Who knows, right? And same thing with Murr writing. That kind of leads to why we have these three theories for what Abraham could be thinking when he sees Mer reading is it cute or is it actually Mer reading? You know, are the are the cats in the alley behind your house wailing and yowling or are they performing street theater? Is your dog eyeing you know the the other dogs running around at daycare with suspicion because he wants to herd them and that's his instinct or because he has some beef with them because they took his ball the last time you know the the handler came in to play with them. Who, who amongst us, whomst amongst us can tell? <laughs> we we know that this is the last time that Murr sees his mother, Mina. When, he, right after he steals, well, he doesn't steal the leftovers. He promises leftovers and then does not deliver <laughs> on the promise. Yes. Um, but then as he, he, he feels very guilty about it and then he says, okay, it's okay, I'll share my breakfast with her. And then he falls into this guilt relief nap and then fails to invite her over for breakfast um and he says that although he never saw his mother again he found comfort and relief in science what a nerd just very very big you know i fucking love wissenschaft energy here from Murr. and he uh he says that you know, there's something wonderful about the sciences. And he says, my thanks, my ardent thanks to the noble man who invented them. To that, we say, yes, thank you, Mr. Science Man, whoever you are, wherever you are. Murr has this way of being really enthusiastic and really naive about, about in this case, science. Uh, and science as in, you know, Wissenschaft, scholarly pursuits. And it's yes. just... Again, very sad, but very funny to read him saying, I never saw my mother again, but that's okay because I had science. Um, It's just a, it's just a, it's both a reflection of where 
this young cat is in his in his journey right now. It's a subtle hint, or maybe not so subtle, that our beloved and slightly pompous hero has a lot of learning still to do. Um, and I think yes. the the remaining parts, you know, parts two, three, and four, really deliver on that promise of what happens when Murr is actually around other cats and when he realizes that maybe he's a little strange for being so, so into scholarship and Wissenschaft. With that, I think we will wrap up episode three and also part one of the life and opinions of the Tomcat Murr. Um, and we will be back soon to discuss part two, the adventures of Chrysler, and then also what Murr will learn as he starts to interact with more cats.